grace and encouragement to you, as I pray and hope will be to us who are here this morning. Before we get started, let me give you just a couple of announcements. First is just a reminder that after the service today, uh, we do have a members meeting to uh, vote in uh, some new members, and also uh, just to discuss uh, the, uh, the school uh, we're looking to start uh, next year. Um, also, if you are joining us via live stream for that meeting, uh, make sure that uh, you uh, that you do uh, identify yourself when you do log in uh, to the Zoom meeting. Uh, you can do that via the chat box just so we know who you are. And then also, uh, in the back, uh, there is a couple of uh, documents as well. This has a, an agenda. Uh, but also, um, I sent out uh, several weeks ago via newsletter kind of a, a frequently asked questions uh, with regards to the school. Um, those answer a lot of the questions that you might have, but that is in the back. If you haven't seen it before, uh, feel free to pick that up um, either before, this, uh, before we get started or after, immediately after the service. Um, and even if you have seen it before and you want to use it as a reference, feel free to pick that up. And also, in addition to that, there's another document that, uh, that has uh, some information about what a university model school is and does. Um, and as, as, as well as kind of a, a vision for the school. So there is that in the back. And then the other announcement I have real quick is that uh, next week uh, during the adult uh, Bible study hour, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different, and that is that for next week, during that hour, we're, we're going to have uh, a missionary uh, come and, and share with us. Uh, his name is Dino uh, Crogdale, who is a missionary in Africa, and he works as a doctor in a clinic. Uh, and as a clinic, of course, they specialize in, in helping and treating people. But as a, as a Christian ministry, they also emphasize uh, the sharing of the gospel with those that they treat and also uh, in discipling uh, and mentoring um, uh, students uh, in that clinic as well. And so he and I think his family will be here next week during, uh, to share during that hour. Uh, so if you already come to that, uh, to that uh, adult Bible study, um, please come for that as well. If you're not a part of that, I would encourage you to uh, to come to that as well, uh, just to hear from him, because uh, 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 it is a wonderful work that they are doing uh, in Africa, and uh, my prayer and hope is that we as a church would partner with them uh, to give to them uh, financially on a regular basis, but also in the near future to be able to send uh, people from our church as well as a means of encouragement and as a way to, to help them in whatever uh, needs uh, that their ministry has. So. Those are the announcements, and so let's go to the Lord and let's worship Him this morning. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship. Amen. Uh, so today's call to worship, um, again, it's uh, Psalm seven seventeen. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to, the, to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Uh, let's worship our Lord and Father this morning. Amen. It's good to see you guys. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Oh, how can this be? For lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless, the least. You have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without hope, without rest. 
Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Oh, how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Yes, he did. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. Yes, Lord. And oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Jesus. 
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted sing together hallelujah 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 praise the one risen sign of God behold behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spot Righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is in with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior. My God with Christ, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's sing hallelujah. you and we sing these praises singing hallelujah praise the one risen son of God father we're here to worship you and you alone it is in Christ Lord that you have brought us together to worship you and praise you as a body as a church Um, and now Lord I pray that we may continue in that worship through your word may you open our eyes Lord our ears our hearts Uh, to hear your word. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Amen. Let me read to us Psalm 3. And then we'll spend some time in prayer. Psalm 3. O Lord, 
How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, there are indeed many foes against us. And Lord, without you, they certainly are much greater than us. Your word tells us that there is this anti-Trinitarian foe that stands against us as Christians, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Together they seek our destruction. They seek to overwhelm us with attacks and distractions. They seek to lure us away from the God of our salvation. Not only that, but we also face many challenges, Lord, many trials, many personal afflictions, Lord. Some of us suffer. We all face temptations of various forms and various degrees. And all these things tempt us to ask, where is God? Lord, where are you when we face unrelenting temptation? Where are you when we struggle to hold on to our faith in times of distress? Where are you when we seek for answers and all we hear is silence? Where are you when the world seems to grow worse by the minute? We have only to look to your word, and your word tells us that you are a shield about us, that you are our glory, that you are the lifter of our head. Lord, your word reminds us that you are here, that you are present, and that you listen to the cries of your people. And even when there may be silence, it does not mean that you are absent. And it does not mean that you do not care for us. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would forgive us for the times that we question you because of your silence. Forgive us for the times when we question and even doubt your sovereignty. Lord, we ask that you would please forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we fail to trust you when we look at our trials, when we look at our suffering, Lord, and we think that those things have the last word. But your word reminds us that you are with us, that you are our covering, that you are our heavenly protector, that you lift up our head when we are cast down. Lord, for you are our joy. You are our salvation. And that joy and that salvation comes from no other thing and no other person than in Jesus Christ and in him alone. 
It is because of you, O Lord, that we can lie down and that we can sleep. We need not be afraid of our enemies or whatever is happening in the world because you, O Lord, you sustain us. God, your word says that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Your word also tells us to not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication make our requests known to you. And your peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust that you have all things under control, that you are sovereign over all events, including our very lives. To trust that you do care for us. So we pray that you would fill us with your peace. Let us not be afraid of anything, for you are greater, O Lord, than our greatest enemies. Our Lord Jesus went to the cross, defeated Satan at the cross, conquered death in his resurrection, and through faith in him, his victory is our victory. Salvation belongs to you and you alone, O God. You, Jesus, are our greatest blessing. To know you as our God is better than the greatest gain in the world. To have Jesus is better than riches. We come to you this morning as your inheritance, as the people whom you have redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We come before you this morning with hearts filled with gratitude for all that you have given to us in the name of Christ. Lord, we pray that you may continue to be honored through our time together. And that in our lives, that you may be shown to be our greatest treasure. We praise you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would please turn to Philippians. Philippians 3, or in verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help our hearts to treasure Christ, to put our confidence in Christ. Lord, Lord, regardless of the things that we have experienced this week, regardless of the trials or the hardships that we have had to endure, Lord, remind us of Christ. Help us to put our eyes on Jesus. For salvation belongs to him and him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The German reformer Martin Luther, at one time, was training to become a lawyer, and then through a kind of a spectacular event in his life, decided to change course from being trained to be a lawyer and instead decided to give his life to be a Catholic priest. That's kind of an appeasement to God. It's kind of a, a way to, to pursue God, that God, if you will spare me, if you will save me, then I will devote my life to you. And so he sought training as a Catholic priest. But he could not endure or sustain the hardship of the reality of God. He prayed often. He prayed for long hours. He tried to do everything that is right, performing all the rites, the rituals, performing good works. He would spend hours at the confessional to, to the point where the priest would have to continue to send him home because he spent too many hours uh, acknowledging, confessing many of his sins, even those that you and I might think are the most perhaps trivial, the ones that we might think are not worthy of perhaps mentioning. He was afraid of conducting the Lord's Supper because he could not bear the weight of, of ministering before the presence of God in, the, in such a way. He lived his life as a way, as a kind of a person who knew that he did not deserve heaven, but he tried to work hard to earn heaven. But it's like no matter what he did, he could not earn it. He put his mind to reading the scriptures, and he came to the book of Romans, and he was struggling. He was actually agonizing over a particular passage in the book of Romans. He was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was in verse 17 where he was agonizing. He says, as in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he took that and understood it to mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, namely the righteousness of God and the condemnation 
of un the unrighteous sinner, of giving them over to his judgment and wrath. And he could not bear the weight of that particular passage because he knew that the righteousness of God demanded a swift judgment over his own life as an unrighteous sinner. And so he said, by his own admission, that he hated that passage. But as he continued to study the passage, and even studying the passage in the original language of the New Testament, he came to the powerful realization that verse 17 of Romans 1 is talking about God's righteousness and his sparing the unrighteous sinner. That the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, namely in his giving a righteousness to the one who believes in Jesus. That that is where we see the righteousness of God in the gospel. And he describes the moment of his realization of that truth as a, as a being born again, is what he said. Those who come to the similar conclusion as Martin Luther can understand the supreme worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A worth that is undermined and devalued by certain persons that the passage here addresses. So then, let's take a look at what these persons teach and in what way they undermine the value of the gospel. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's a command here to rejoice in the Lord, which is fitting, given everything that he's going to say. Namely, when he gets to the conclusion of this particular section, where he seeks to remind the church. And what is exactly he's reminding is hard, kind of hard to determine contextually. But I think he's trying to remind them of what he's about to say. Could have been stuff that he had mentioned before when he first planted the church. But he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Reminders are important, right? Reminders keep us on track. Reminders keep us of forgetting important dates and tasks and appointments. To some degree, reminders help maintain relationships. And in this case, reminders are a matter of salvation. Three times he says, look out, look out, look out, look out, beware, be cautious of these dogs, these evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. But the question is, who's are, who are these individuals that he's warning the church about? It's not the pretentious preachers of chapter 1, those who are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. He seems to consider those as brothers in Christ to some degree. It's not the world which he addresses in Philippians, the end of Philippians chapter 1. What he has to say here are pretty harsh words. It would be kind of uncharacteristic of the Apostle Paul because he never uses such language to describe the world in any other of his letters. But he seems to be addressing some false teachers. Namely, these teachers seem to be Jewish Christians. These are Christians who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a combination of ethnic Jews who certainly believed in the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, came into the world, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that salvation comes through believing in Jesus. 
but at the same time believed and taught that one also has to have circumcision, that one still needs to ascribe to the Mosaic law in addition to believing in the gospel. These might also be individuals who were Gentiles, believed in the gospel, but they also at the same time became sort of proselytes under the Mosaic law. And so still ascribing to the Mosaic law. Hence why Paul says, those who mutilate the flesh, and he goes on to say that we put no confidence in the flesh, for we are the circumcision. So these are false teachers who are saying that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also put yourself under the law of Moses. So in other words, you must become like a Jew in order to receive salvation. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh, evildoers. He calls them dogs. He was pretty vile. Now, it's hard for us to kind of not see that as something that's very harsh because today, I mean, dogs are considered man's best friends. People have dogs as pets. People even call da- dogs their, their children, which is kind of odd to me. But back then, people didn't have dogs as pets. You might use dogs for hunting, but dogs were scavengers. Dogs roamed the streets and picked through trash and whatever it else. People would call somebody a dog as a way of insulting them. It was pretty harsh. So is Paul being overly harsh and kind of calling out these teachers in these ways? I don't think so, especially when you consider what is at stake. I mean, these individuals, these teachers are saying that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ plus submit yourself under the law of Moses. That is these two things that give you salvation. So believe and also earn. And so Paul says, beware of these teachers. Beware of them. Look out. Look out. Look out. For we are the ones who are circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We are the true Israelites. It's essentially what he is saying. Romans 2.25, Paul speaks to this. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, the man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who has a written code and circumcision but break the law. And here's the kicker. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the one who is a true Jew, according to the Scriptures, is the one who believes in Christ. That is the one who puts no confidence in his flesh. The one who puts no confidence in his works. John 4, 21. Jesus, in his conversation to the Samaritan woman at the well, says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, spirit, must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus seems to be teaching here that a fundamental element of worship is that it requires the tr- a right nature, and that is a spiritual nature. You cannot worship God who is spirit apart from having a right spiritual nature. That only comes through having the living and abiding Holy Spirit of God in you. Only then can you truly and actually worship God. These false teachers, on the other hand, are placing an emphasis on works, on the flesh. And so essentially, they do not worship God. In fact, the scriptures do teach that those who are in the flesh cannot even please God. And then Paul points to his impeccable, impeccable resume as a point of comparison. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, already obeying the law, right? Thanks to his parents. He's already obeying the law. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was of the chosen people. God, originally, in the Old Testament, we see Israelites were God's original chosen people. Paul was of that people. Not only that, but a Jew could also trace back his lineage to be able to point point what tribe exactly he was from. As to the law, a Pharisee, right, a teacher of the law, an instructor of the law, one who told people what God commanded, what God desired, one who showed people the way, one who understood the law, one who memorized the law. Paul was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. A persecutor of Christians. Pursuing Christians. Throwing in prison the Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He obeyed the law. He followed the law. He had impeccable, impeccable resume, impeccable credentials, a zeal for God. Or a, right. Not really. He thought he was doing the work of God and persecuting Christians, throwing them into prison, consenting to the death of the Christian Stephen. Leader among God's people. Paul essentially says, if anybody earned salvation, it was me. I had it. I maintained it. Almost nobody else could compare 
In fact, he's saying it. These Jewish Christians so emphasize the works of the flesh in order to earn salvation, they need to live up to my standard. A standard that is actually very hard to achieve. Not only that, but if you want to be in a very advantageous position, it'd be helpful to be a, a Hebrew, God's chosen people, God's people that God still has a plan for, I believe. So nobody was in a better position than the Apostle Paul to receive salvation. But then Paul goes on to say, to show that on the end, it didn't matter. He let it all go. Putting your confidence in the flesh or in works is dangerous. But this is what Martin Luther was doing. And he found it absolutely impossible to maintain. He couldn't. Anyone who places the trust upon their own works doesn't understand the gravity of sin, nor the gravity of the justice and holiness of God. Galatians 5.2 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Right, so if you put yourself under the law, then you are required to keep the entire law perfectly. And Paul will say elsewhere in the book of Galatians that those who are under a law are under a curse. Why? Because they failed to keep the law. That's what the law originally demanded. If anybody disobeys the law, then they are under a curse. You and I cannot keep the law. And anyone who puts himself in, in a position of, un, of being under the law, putting their confidence under the law, are putting themselves in a yoke, under a yoke that they cannot bear. Right? And for any believer who places such confidence under the law, Paul says that you are severed from Christ. The only solution is to put your confidence elsewhere, namely in a person that is in Jesus Christ. With regards to his impeccable resume, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Martin Luther came to this powerful realization of what the gospel actually meant, of what this righteousness that is in the gospel actually meant. And it was liberating to him. Liberating to a, a person who understood that he cannot be righteous enough, that he cannot do enough, that he cannot confess enough, that he cannot pray long enough in order to merit God's salvation and to keep it. 
right, until he understood that this righteousness that we are all required to have comes from an alien righteousness. That is, an a, a righteousness doesn't come from us, but comes from another person, and that is Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul experienced an awakening on the Damascus Road on his way to persecute Christians when the Lord Jesus revealed to him and he began to see that his own righteous works doesn't matter. It didn't gain anything for him. But it must come through Jesus Christ. There's a person that I, that I follow, that I like to follow, I love to listen to, though he's not a Christian. Clinical psychologist, conservative. By the name of Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard of him. This man has a lot to think about and a lot to say with regards to God, with regards to the Bible. He even teaches through the book of Genesis. And some of his insights are actually really helpful. Now, some of them are just kind of way off. But I was struck by a video several weeks ago that I saw where he said, where he admitted that, that, the, that the reality of Christ is absolutely terrifying. Terrifying because of the demands that it places on a person. Wait, and the Gospels tell us what that demand is. You have to give up your life in order to receive Jesus. That is an incredible demand. Not only that, but the reality of Christ is frightening, right? If Jesus is truly the Son of God and he came into the world, lived as a perfect human being, died on the cross, rose from the dead... And that means not only he is Savior, but he is also judge, and that he will certainly judge all human beings. That is a very terrifying reality if you don't believe in Jesus. And the only way to escape that reality is actually to run to that reality, to run to Jesus Christ, to run to the only one who can protect you, to the only one who can save you. if all you have is a tiny little hope that maybe in eternity you'll end up in a good place based on the little minuscule good works that Lord considers in the grand scheme of eternity meaningless, then yes, the reality of Christ is absolutely terrifying. But the reality of Christ for those who place their faith and trust upon Jesus is actually a comforting and peaceful reality.
Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Salvation is determined by the object of your confidence. What we see here in the passage is that these false teachers had a misplaced confidence that matters in the flesh. A misplaced is not like misplacing your keys or misplacing your wallet. It's like a pilot of an airplane. Say he was flying from Boston to Orlando, Florida. Sets the destination, right, the coordinates, sets it on autopilot, but if he lets just if he just lets the the plane fly on its own, it's gonna end up somewhere else. Why? Because the earth continues to turn. We have to continually adjust the coordinates to make sure he's heading in the right direction. This is what a misplaced confidence results in. It re- results in a completely different eternal destination. Paul is showing us here not only a, a, the right confidence, but he shows us what the, call, the right confidence results in, and that is an absolute joy and a treasure that one has found. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He says again, I count everything as loss. He says later, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, he says. Everything that he had, he has impeccable resume. Everything that he had, everything that he once was, the prestige, the honor, the status, the respect, the admiration that he had from the people, from his fellow teachers, everything that he had, he counted as absolute rubbish. Garbage. Worse than that. In fact, Paul even has something much more vile to say with regards to those things. Something even vulgar, something that even back then, I don't know, might even be considered a cuss word, equivalent to a four-letter word that you and I are familiar with today. In other, in other words, Paul says, I count this as excrement for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. finds a great treasure in the field. He counts it much more worthy than everything that he has in his possession. He goes and he sells all of his possessions in order to buy the field where the treasure is. He says that in his joy, he does it. The merchant gives up everything he has, sells everything he has to buy this one pearl of great value because he has determined that this thing, this one pearl, is worth everything that he has. That's an absolute joy. 
Paul is not speaking about an experience of regret. There wasn't any reluctance, I think, or any reservation. He wasn't having, he doesn't have any bitterness. He wasn't missing the good old days. No, he counts everything that he once had as rubbish. Because having Christ is far better. These passages in Matthew 13 also speak of confidence as well. The man who found the treasure hidden in the field counted what he found in that field to be much more valuable than what he had in his personal possessions. He was confident in it, so he gave up everything else in order to have it. The the, the merchant of fine pearls saw this one pearl and was confident that it is worth than anything he has in his possession. He sold it all so he could have that one pearl. Right, and that is the confidence that Paul describes in the passage with regards to the gospel, and that is the same confidence that you and I are called to have with regards to the gospel, that in comparison to everything else, it is rubbish because Christ is infinitely better, of much more value. Replacing, replacing your confidence in your own works to save you. I ask you to repent and turn to Jesus and place your confidence upon Jesus and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. But even as believers, we at times have a tendency to put our confidence in other things in addition to the gospel. Sometimes we have a tendency to put our confidence in our Bible reading. How often we read the Bible instead of putting our confidence in the one who the Bible, the Bible describes. Instead of loving and pursuing a relationship with the one who saved us. Sometimes we have a tendency to put our confidence in our prayers. How often we pray, how long we pray, instead of putting our confidence in the one who purchased this gift of prayer for us and stands as a high priest in the heavens who intercedes on our behalf. Sometimes we have a a tendency to place our confidence on church attendance, where it should be a confidence on the person that we are looking to worship and to praise, that is Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in our confession. I will pray, I will confess, and the Lord will forgive me, instead of putting our confidence and the one who has purchased our forgiveness and died for every single one of our sins. Sometimes we treat prayer or, or confession as a, or it's a magic formula. It's not intended to function that way. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in people. Sometimes we tend to place our confidence in making people happy. As a pastor, I have a tendency to place my confidence in church attendance. Or and making people happy. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in the wrong things. And and many of those things are things that we don't necessarily have control over. You can't always control what people think about you. You can't always control what people do. You can't always control who's present, who isn't. 
we all can't always control what's in the bank or what isn't. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our trust in what we have or don't have. And so we lie awake at night but cannot sleep because we don't have a confidence in Christ. Let this today be a reminder to you to place your entire confidence 100% upon Jesus Christ. Not in man. Not in any liturgy. Not in your good works. But place your confidence upon Jesus Christ. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. I mean, the difference between Christianity, the difference between the way that we choose to live because we are Christians in comparison to all other religions of the world is that we have our confidence in a relationship, and that is with Christ. No other religion, no other way of life has that. They place their confidence in other things. They place their confidence in good works or doing the right thing. There's no confidence in a relationship. But that's where our ultimately, that's where our confidence comes from. We have confidence of our acceptance. We have confidence of our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And he concludes that I may know him and the power of resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Speaking about our union with Christ, sharing with Christ, being united to Christ. Now, this passage isn't intended to be prescriptive, that you are called to give up all that you have right now or all to follow Jesus Christ. And it's in a way, as a Christian, you already have. That you've given your life to follow Jesus. And the Christian life continues or, or, or demands a continual dying of yourself, right? Day by day, dying to yourself in order to follow Jesus. And if Christ is a great treasure of the Christian life, the resurrection is the great reward of the Christian life. This is ultimately what we have to hope for. This is ultimately what is waiting for those who continue to die to themselves and to follow Jesus Christ, who continue to put their confidence in Christ, who continue to see Jesus as their as the supreme treasure of their life. We are looking forward to the resurrection. And the resurrection isn't an end of itself. But we look forward to the resurrection because in the resurrection, we enjoy more of Christ. We get to enjoy Christ and our relationship to a much greater degree than we could ever have in this life. So that by any means possible, we look to attain the resurrection so that we may have more of Christ. So may you and I continue to put our confidence in Jesus. I mean, it is a choice that we have to make every single day. As I said before, there's always a tendency to put our confidence in something else plus the gospel. But that isn't the gospel. The gospel is placing your confidence in the gospel 
and that alone. And that alone is our source of joy, a source of peace, it's our source of comfort. And in that is where we receive our greatest hope, which is the resurrection, so that we may have more of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we want to put our full confidence in the gospel. Lord, and sometimes we fail to do that. Sometimes it is just easier to depend on ourselves or put confidence in ourselves and our own works. Lord, but your scriptures command us to put our confidence in you and in you alone. Lord, would you help us to do that? Only when we place our confidence in you can we be better Christians, can we be better brothers and sisters to our siblings in Christ. Only by placing our confidence in you, our full confidence in you, can we be better neighbors to those around us. So would you help us to do that? Each and every day, help us to make the choice to put our confidence in you and in you alone. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Church, let's let's stand and and worship the Lord one more time together um, as a body. And this this last song is it's one that uh, a lot of us know, but in response to today's word uh, let us meditate in the song um, in the words that we're singing let's worship him amen Worship him, church. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of Jesus died, the wrath of God 
God, may we, may we place our confidence, Lord, in Christ alone today. May we know, we, we, we know Lord, that this requires much uh, sacrifice and, and dying to ourselves, yes, um, daily. So please, Lord, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to attain just that. And so, Father, just help us, Lord, to, to look uh, to Christ at every moment of our lives. God, you are worthy of our praise. And that is what we have done here today, Lord. We've come to worship you. And in that, uh, I leave you, church, with a benediction out of Romans 8. And the word of God says that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Church, God bless you, and you are dismissed. Amen. Thank you.